Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. So uh, Angie and I uh, have very different ways of telling stories. Um, If you have met Angie and I for more than five minutes, you will know that I tend to like to tell these yarns, these sort of long stories that sort of, they've got intrigue and the plot twist and things are going on and here's this side character that you'll get introduced to again later and he's going to be important and, you know, all that. Angie tends to be more direct and to the point. Uh, To wit, one time we were talking with some very good friends of ours and, and we're sitting around, we're at a mellow mushroom and we're eating pizza and we're enjoying ourselves and we had had these friends that just had this incredible news. So I'm spinning this, oh, you remember them? They were from Florida and, you know, yeah, you guys did this with them and, you know, they went in for a sonogram on their baby and I'm sort of spinning this yarn and then Angie just blurts out in the middle of my well-crafted story, You know, this thing would like, could be studied in English class. She just blurts out, twins, twins, our friends are having twins. Come on. I had a, that's the punchline, right? It's funny because in a lot of ways, this is very typical, not just of us, but typical of the way that guys and girls tell stories, right? Guys and girls tell stories in different ways and different personalities tell stories in different ways. Last week, the story that we looked at, the story of Ehud, was very much a dude's campfire story, right? If you were here last week, you remember, I mean, that it even had, it even had references to poo in the story, right? I mean, it had, it had all the makings of a 14-year-old boy's favorite type of stories. There were, there were fat people and assassins, and I mean, the whole nine yards, it had it all. If last week's story was sort of the the campfire dude story, it's amazing that back-to-back with that this week is sort of this girl's night out painting and pino type of story, right? That it's, that it's sort of the opposite side of the stick. It still has those elements of dark humor that we see in Judges. It still has a lot of these things going on, but it's from a different perspective and has a, a different tone in a different voice. And so what I want to do is I don't want to sort of uh, hold the suspense any longer. I just want to read this story. It's the entirety of Judges chapter 4. It's the story of uh, really three people, a woman named Deborah, a man named Barak, and another woman named J.L. So if you would, let's stand up, and I'm going to read Judges chapter 4 to us this morning. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinayim, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor. 
taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, Surely, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his hills, heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father of Moses, and pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abba Noam, had gone up from Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all of the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued his chariots and the army of Harasheth Hagoyim, all the way, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned aside and went into her tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and says and asks you, Is there anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man with whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Now, I know my creative spacing on the PowerPoints helped, but this story is sort of a Coen Brothers dark comedy, right? I mean, the, the sort of, and so he died, 
is meant to get just the response that it did, right? It's meant to get laughs. And there's a number of other sort of elements of dark humor in this story that are actually quite funny. One of them is when it says that she covered him with a rug, the word for rug could also be the word for skirt. And then when he says, go to the door and, and say, is, if anyone comes and asks, is there a man here, tell them no. And so there's this big joke on Sisera that she gets covered in a skirt, and then he says, and tell them there's no man here. And the, the writer of the Bible is making a joke. The joke that he's making is, Sisera was no sort of man, right? And so we're supposed to see this story. But as we begin to look at it, we not only see this dark humor, but we begin to see the cycle of the judges playing out again. When Ehud died, the people went back to doing exactly what they were doing before. They went back to worshiping the gods of the people around them. They went back to their sin. And then they got sold into slavery. And the way that it talks about it was, this was just like Egypt. They were forced into hard labor labor by Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. And not only that, but he had an insurmountable army. When it says 900 chariots, the the only sort of concept of chariots we have is maybe we've watched Ben-Hur once or twice, right? We don't sort of, chariots doesn't evoke anything for us. But in the ancient Near East at the time that this story was written, this would have been tactical missiles and drones. This would have been the absolute pinnacle of military technology. If you had a fleet of chariots, you were going to win the battle. It's sort of like in, in uh, Top Gun, you know. America had the best fighter jets and we had Tom Cruise. We were going to win any battle that was set before us, right? That's pretty much the lesson from Top Gun, as I remember it. That's the sort of same thing. Sisera and his fleet of iron chariots was Maverick and his fleet of F-15s, 14s. Thank you for the uh, historians here. Yeah, so they were an insurmountable army. And so then the people decided that they were going to cry out. And God listened to their cries, and he sent a deliverer. But there's something strange that happens in this story that's sort of different from any of the other stories of the judges. Who was the rescuer in this story? Deborah. Or was it Barak? Or was it... JL and the Tent Peg Club. What's interesting is there's no single judge in this story. Each one of the characters plays a part. Deborah is the one who is sort of the leader, who is given the the advice, and people are coming to her with her problems. Barak is the one who ends up leading the army in their actual charge. JL is the one who ends up killing the bad guy. Instead of where we had in the last story Ehud, who was the judge, he was the leader, and he was the assassin. In this story, we've got all these different people playing it out. And what this chapter is ultimately about, what this chapter sort of boils down to, is courage. This chapter, the story of Deborah, Barak, and Jael, is a story about courage. And it's, to us, a reminder that more often than not, we lack courage in the face of difficulties. In the face of hard things in our life, in the face of difficult decisions, it's easy for us to lack courage. 
So what I want to do is just go through these three characters and, and point out a little bit something about them. Uh, the first one is Deborah. Deborah is, at the beginning of this story, the one that we expect to be the hero of this entire story. And there's some interesting things that the Bible says about Deborah. It says, first of all, that she was a prophetess, that she spoke the word of God. And not only that, but she was judging all of Israel. So she had sort of her place set up where people would come and they would, they would talk to her. And then not only that, but it, she's the one who calls Barak and says, listen, now is the time. You need to get the troops together. She's the one sort of leading behind the scenes. And then when they get to the battlefield, she's the one who ends up saying, okay, elbow, elbow, now, go. She's the one who speaks the word of God. And I think it's important to stop here for a minute and point something out. Something that should be obvious to us, but it, it bears pointing out. Deborah was a leader. Deborah was a leader of God's people. See, it's, it's, it's difficult because sometimes, uh, sometimes people tend to think that the Bible does not have a lot of respect for women that it sort of treats them as second-class citizens. And Deborah is proof positive that that's just not the case. I want to talk just for a minute about this, because, first of all, men and women were created in the image of God. No one gender encapsulates who God is more than the other. We are equal image bearers in front of Jesus. Men and women. And as you read through the Bible, there are all sorts of analogies to both sides of that when it comes to God. Yes, Jesus tells us to pray to God, our Father. But at the same time, when the Psalms talks about God, it talks about God in terms of a, a mother hen who wants to gather his children under his arms to protect them from the storm. And so neither male nor female perfectly encapsulates and shows us who God is. We need one another. We need all of each other to show the image of God. But it's not just the image of God, it's also different roles. Here we have Deborah, who is a leader and a judge of the people of Israel. She is their president for all intents and purposes. And not only that, but she's a prophetess. She's speaking the word of God and teaching the people of Israel. We see other people throughout the Bible. We see Esther, who is a queen. We see Phoebe, who is a deaconess. We see almost every role in the Bible filled by women with one slight exception. The one exception to this is that there was no female priest in the Bible, which is really interesting when it comes to the story um, that we have before us because Barak is said to be from Kadesh Naphtali. And you and I read that and we go, Justin just read another one of those silly words that he had to pronounce right? And, and we sort of say, maybe I'll look up Kadesh Naphtali on a map later, right? But when you do, there's something that you might miss, that I missed until this week, which is this. Kadesh Naphtali was one of the Levite cities of refuge. And so the people of Israel had scattered throughout the land these cities that were run by priests. And these were cities where if you were accused of a crime, you could go to the city and find sanctuary. You could run there and be taken care of 
by the priest. And maybe there would be extradition, maybe there would not. That was sort of a place you could go to get a fair trial and fair treatment. And it was a city that was populated by priests. It's fascinating that in this story, Deborah, who fills almost every role, she's a prophetess, she's a a civil leader, she's all of these things, she still says, I need to go get a priest. So what do I mean by all this? Well, at City Church, we find ourselves in sort of an odd space when it comes to women in leadership. Because we sort of are right in the middle. On the one hand, we believe that men and women are absolutely equal in the sight of God. Hard stop. I'll say it again because it bears repeating. Men and women are absolutely equal in the sight of God. Hard stop. But at the same time, we see that the Bible has carved out that there is certain roles that men and women fulfill. That being the role of priest. And so on the one hand, we say, and yes, a woman can do anything in church besides this one thing, but she can't be the priest. And so we sort of, we sort of find ourselves in between two sides. One side that would say we're unfair because we're limiting that role. And another side that says we're giving too much. We're giving too much away. And so one of the things that this sort of reminds me of is this. That it is a courageous act to submit ourselves to an authority other than ourselves. Because God has critiques for us from both our left and our right. God is more liberal than some of us want him to be. God is more conservative than others of us want him to be. If your God believes all of the same things that you do, if your God validates every one of your opinions and doesn't critique them, you don't have a God. You have a mirror. If your God can't critique and say, what you believe about any issue is not what I have to say, that's a mirror. That's you going, my opinions are the best. What I have to say is the best, and I'm going to make God in. It takes a step of courage to say, I'm going to let whatever the Bible says dictate how I do my life. But enough about that thorny issue. It's amazing, though, how uh, God times things out. This weekend, this text we planned almost a month ago, that would be this weekend, and yet here we have women's marches, and now here in City Church we're talking about about women. Uh, But I want to look at Barak, because... Barak's an interesting character. As we read through the story, and as I talk about sort of courage and cowardice, at our first reading, which side would you put Barak on? Barak is the general who gets called to lead the army. And it's really easy for us to sort of put him into the role of a coward. Why? He gets called by Deborah to where she's at, and she says, you need to go out to battle. And what does Barak say? Well, I'm only going to go if you go with me. What does that sound like? Sounds like fear, doesn't it? Right? That sounds, that sounds like the child. I'm only going back to my room. I'm scared of the dark. I'm only going if you go with me. 
right? Or that sounds like somebody saying, I'm only going on this roller coaster if you go with me. Or in my case, no, I'm not going into that haunted house. I don't do haunted houses. I don't care who goes with me. It's, it's, the, it's the language that we often associate with fear. But what's fascinating is that's an easy way to look at it. But as we read the rest of the story, what else does he do that looks fearful? Nothing. When it's time to battle, he's not hanging out in the back, commanding his troops from behind. He's the first guy running down the hill. And when they kill all of the foot soldiers, he's the guy running and leading the charge, trying to find Sisera, the big bad guy. The next chapter, which we're going to talk about next week, is a song, and it praises him. And not only that, when we get to the New Testament, Hebrews 11 says that Barak is one of the heroes of the faith. He's listed in this chapter that's sort of the hall of fame of Old Testament Christians with Abraham and Moses and David and Barak. I wonder if there's something else going on. You know, it's interesting that as a prophetess, Deborah represented the presence of God. That she was the presence of God to the people of Israel. So when Barak says to her, I'm not going if you don't go, here's what he's saying. I'm not going if the presence of God is not going with me. I'm not going to go on my own strength. I'm not going to go try to lead this and do this on my own. I need you to come with me because I need the presence of God. And then Deborah says something really fascinating to her. She says, yes, of course, I'll go with you. But you need to know something. You need to know that when this is all over, you're not going to get the glory. When this is all over, a woman is going to be the hero in this story. And what does Barak do? What does Barak do when he's told, just so you know, someone else is going to get the credit? He leads the people down the hill. He charges forward into battle. You see, what's really the most courageous thing about Barak is that he was willing to do this despite the fact that he would not get any of the credit and he would not get any of the glory. He would not get to kill the bad guy. He would not be the hero. How often are you and I willing to do something courageous knowing we won't be rewarded? How often are you and I willing to take a stand even when we're not going to be rewarded. You see, I'm all for taking a stand when I'm going to get a lot of Facebook likes and people are going to like what I do. I'm all for taking a stand when 85% of the people around me agree with me. But what about when you're the lone person? What about when it's just you, what does your courage look like then? What does my courage look like then? 
See, oftentimes, I want to take a stand so that I can get God to give me something. See, God, look, I stood up for you at work. I said, no, I'm not going to do that, and I didn't. And look at me, God. Reward me. Reward me. Or other times, when I take a stand, it's sort of um, signaling virtue. One of the things that has become um, a huge part of our culture and that's, that's sort of significant is the way that instead of being virtuous, instead of being courageous and doing the right thing, what we have started to do is just show the signals, show the signs that we are doing the right thing so the people who are like-minded with us will give us attaboys. I want to prove that I'm a part of this segment of society, and if you're a part of this segment of society, these are the things you do. And everybody clicks the like button. And everybody pats you on the back. When really, all we want to do is get people to approve of us. Barak charged down a hill with an inferior army on foot against almost a thousand iron chariots, knowing full well that he was not going to get the glory for it. What about this? Would you be willing to work hard at your job knowing that somebody else is going to get the promotion for the work you did? Do you have the courage to work hard even though someone else is going to get the promise? See, most of us want to have virtue when it advances our cause, when it advances our brand ourself. But when it comes to things that may never be seen, when it comes to things that may never get us any credit, we fade off. The last character is, is J.L. And J.L.'s story is, is just as interesting as Barak's. Because what happens is you got that, that little that little verse stuck in the middle of the chapter where it says, and oh, by the way, there was this Kenite named Heber, and he moved up to this other place. And just reading it, you sort of go, well, well, that's random, and there's a lot of hard words to pronounce in there. What's going on with this? Well, what's going on there is is the author, the author's doing good storytelling, right? You, you know, like, once you sort of see something in movies, you sort of know, oh, I know what they're doing, right? It's, they sort of establish something. So, like, anytime you're watching a movie and they zoom in on some random object, guess what? Somewhere before the end of the movie, that random object is going to be the big deal right? They're, they're telling you. They're telling you in advance. Especially if you ever watch a movie a second time, right? You go back and you go, oh, yeah, that, that's why they kept showing that thing. Because that's the end of the movie. That thing is what it's all about. This is what's going on here. The people who were the Kenites were a nomadic tribe, and they were related to Moses' in-laws. And they had made uh, an alliance with the tribe of Judah in the south of Israel. And with this alliance that they had made, they sort of said, 
we're going to become a part of the people of God. We're going to become part of the tribe of Judah. Except Heber didn't like that plan. He didn't like the idea of his family converting to Judaism. So he picked up his piece uh, and his stakes, and he said, I'm out. I'm going to go up north. I'm going to go live with the Canaanites. I'm going to go live like the Canaanites. And so he moves his family away from the rest of his tribe, away from the part of his tribe that was following God. And we just get that little tidbit. Well, then, lo and behold, when Sisera, who, by the way, is showing some cowardice, right? Where is the general supposed to be in the battle? Where is Barak? leading the charge at the front. Where is Sisera? As soon as things get bad, he ditches his chariot and runs. He says, uh, nope, I'm out, and goes. And he runs away, and all of a sudden, he says, oh, I know, I'm not too far from Heber. I'm going to go find him, because he's nice with my boss. He's friendly. And so he says, okay, I'll go. I'll go there. And when he gets there, it's interesting whose tent he goes into. Does he go find the master's tent? Does he go find Heber's tent? No. Finds Heber's wife, J.L. And J.L. takes him in. She says, I'll take you in. Come on. Come on in. Come on. She puts a rug over him. He says, I want water. She gives him some yogurt, milk curd thing, which the more I've thought about it this week and thought about the lack of refrigeration, I don't care what kind of yogurt or cheese it is, that lack of refrigeration has stuck with me all week for some reason in my mind. But she gives him what apparently was a delicacy, and he falls asleep. And he makes the statements that we sort of talked about before about if anyone asks if there's a man here, tell them there's no man here, right? Oh, no, don't worry, there's not. And then when he's nice and fast asleep, she nails his head to the ground, which that's a pretty cool, pretty cool story, right? I mean, this is a, this is a go get him type of story, let's be honest, right? That's cool. Of all, of all the ways to die, that's wild, right? And then sort of the, the reveal when Barak shows up and she sort of goes, come on in. And you, you sort of, even reading the text, can sort of see he goes in and there's this lumpy carpet in the middle of the tent. And, you know, and there she is like a game show host. Door number two, here's a guy stapled to the ground. But what was she doing? Her whole family had broken off of the rest of their tribe to move away from the people of God and had made an alliance with the Canaanites. When Jael did this, she was going against the decisions of her closest friends and family. That takes courage. Her husband had decided to align himself with the Canaanites and not the And yet when time came for action, she had a plan. She was ready, and she acted on behalf of God's people. How often do you and I have courage in the face of having to go against what our closest friends and family?
would say. How often do you and I say hard things to the people that we love? When we have relationships where we have to constantly be walking on eggshells because we don't want to slip up and criticize them because we don't want to do anything that could possibly damage the relationship. When we have those things, when we have eggshell relationships, what we actually have is idolatrous relationships. Because if I'm more concerned with what you think of me than what God thinks of me, who is my God? When we elevate relationships so high that we're not willing to break them to follow God, we have functionally made those relationships our God. And what JL does is in the face of that, in the face of her husband who had decided to walk away from God, she says no. Even if this is great personal cost, even if this is incredibly difficult on all of my relationships, I am going to do the right thing. And we can talk some other time about how the right thing is driving a, uh, a nail through a guy's temple. But that's the decision she makes. We see courage in bearing, even though he knew that he was not going to get the glory for this. He did it for others' sake. We see courage in jail in the way that she is willing to break relationships to follow God. And as we read through those, even just those two examples, what we're probably feeling right now is, yeah, I don't have that sort of courage. That bravery is not something that I always have. But what we also see in this story and what we're reminded of is the courage of Jesus. Because Jesus went to the cross, which took courage. Because he knew that he was about to go through immense physical, spiritual, and emotional suffering that he was going to lose relationships. When Jesus went to the cross, only one of his 12 disciples was there. Only one of them followed him that far. In fact, one of them betrayed him. Another one of him denied him. The other ones besides one split. Jesus had courage in ways that we don't. But not only that, the way that Jael nailed the enemy of God to the ground is the same thing that happened on the cross. If you guys follow our Instagram, you saw a picture this week that I think is incredibly helpful and beautiful. And it's the picture of the feet of Jesus on the cross. And there is a nail that would look just like a tent peg, that would look just like the pegs that they would use for the Roman soldiers to set up their tents. Those were the sort of nails that they would use to hang people to crosses. And just like the tent peg, went through Sisera's head. The tent peg for your lack of courage and mine went through the hands and the feet of Jesus. 
as Jesus died to forgive us for all of the ways that we lack courage, for all of the ways that we have been cowardly and sallow, for all of the ways that we have treated other relationships as more important than God, for the ways that we only do things when we think that we're going to get credit. Jesus took those things and nailed them to the cross. But in doing so, the nail that went through the hands and feet of Jesus went through the head of the serpent. Went through the head of our sin. That Jesus has died not just to forgive us, but to free us. Jesus died for your cowardice, my cowardice, my unwillingness to say hard things. He died at great personal cost and at the cost of some of his personal friends so that you and I can begin to live a new sort of life. If I have been accepted by Jesus, I don't need to fight for you. If I have been loved by Jesus, I don't need to be loved by anyone else. It's good. It's helpful. It helps me as a person. But at the end of the day, if I put my trust in another person, even my spouse, to be the one that gives me fulfillment... is going to come up empty-handed. So Jesus frees us and says, you can be strong. You can be courageous because I have done this on your behalf. I have accepted you. I have forgiven you. I have made you whole. I am the one who's going to give you courage. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us first for the way that we want to confine you to a box. For the way that we want to remake you in our own image. To believe the same things that we believe. To support the same causes we support. Jesus, we have fashioned you in our own image. Father, forgive us. Father, we have been selfish. We have only done the right thing because we thought we were going to get a reward. We have not risked any part of ourselves for the sake of the gospel. We've not been courageous like that. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the way that we have put too much faith in certain relationships. For the way that we have made them our God, our idol. And we've been unwilling to follow you into hard places. Jesus, forgive us. Jesus, we are thankful that you do forgive us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just in forgiving our sins and cleansing us from all of our unrighteousness. 
Jesus, as we're reminded of that, as we're reminded, yes, of our sin, of our brokenness, may we be doubly reminded of your goodness, of your willingness to go to the cross, of your courage in the face of your own death as you look forward to your resurrection. Jesus, may that fill us with hope. May that change our hearts. May that encourage us and begin to spark a little bit more courage in my heart and in the hearts of all of us here at City.